doing this series called Meeting Jesus, right, in the Gospel of John. And one of the realities of that is not only did people meet Jesus personally in the first century, but ever since Jesus died and rose again, people have been meeting Jesus every day. And so we want to be in tune with what happened in the past, but also aware of what God is doing in the future. So I've asked Janice if she would to share uh, a brief word about this. So Janice, if you will, thank you. So it was about five or six weeks ago, Steve um, asked us to, um, to um, maybe write down our thoughts and our, uh, our story, uh, how uh, Jesus became real to me. So um, I debated over that uh, few days afterwards and um, decided just to write down some of the thoughts I had about how I found my way to Jesus. So I'm going to read this because I'm not too uh, extemporaneous. I have paid lip service to Jesus most of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. My prayer is asking for my wishes, paying lip service to thy will be done. I know that my prayers have not gone unheeded, but have been answered in ways made clearer when I reflect on the events of my life. Some years back when you'll recall that WWJD, What Would Jesus Do, was popular. Some in my family modified it to say, What Would Janice Do? I guess because of their perception of me and my motives, or maybe because when I married, my initials changed to JC. I guess I really don't know what they meant. It mystified me back then, and I laughed it off. Most of my life, I remember being uncomfortable in rooms with crucifixes and or pictures of Jesus on the cross on the walls. I was too uncomfortable seeing such cruelty. I have tried to diminish the severity of his suffering on that cross by imagining that he was not really nailed up there. I neither could watch Old Yeller and actually have stopped going to sad movies in public settings, too. Along the way, our daughter Julie has had a patient and persistent part in keeping Jesus ever-present in my life. In fact, I am going to interject She gave me this Bible um, 10 years ago for Mother's Day, and I'd like to read um, a verse, uh, Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was whipped, and we were healed. More recently, I have struggled with the concept of forgiveness and have relearned at Ecclesia that forgiveness began and lives in Jesus. In learning forgiven people, forgive people, I have accepted the crucifixion as God's faithful love enduring forever and the sacrifice Jesus made while pleading with God to forgive them. My journey did not begin with an aha moment as a youngster or as a teenager. My realization of Christ's presence in my life has been in increments over many years, and only recently have I asked him to carry my fears, troubles, thoughts, and plans. I have asked God to soften my heart and let Jesus in. And now when I feel my chest tighten, my heart ache, it isn't only due to anxiety. More often now, it is in response to my feeling or my longing to feel God working in my heart and the love of Jesus filling it. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Oh, aren't you glad you came to church today? Yeah. And at this time, Cheryl is going to read our scripture for us.
which is a little difficult because Janice just made me cry. So, <laughs> Our reading today is from John chapter 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these, these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went out, went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for, the, for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of God. It was September 1991. Billy Tyne was the captain of the, of the sword fishing ship called the Andrea, Andrea Gale. And, and it was based in Massachusetts. And he convinced his crew to join him for one more late season fishing expedition. It had been a bad year. He needed the money. He wanted to go out with them. So he convinced his crew to go out with him. Now, there's a thunderstorm developing around them, but they are seasoned fishermen, professionals, alas, and, and accustomed to all kinds of weather. They were aware of the thunderstorm and knew that they'd be able to handle that, but they hadn't accounted for the fact that a variety of different weather conditions all had converged together to form what later came to be called the perfect storm. The bottom line was that this, in despite all of their expert skills, all of them died in that storm and only scattered pieces of the boat were ever found anywhere. What was it then that caused this so-called perfect storm? I read an interview with Bob Case, who uh, was a deputy meteorologist in the Boston office of the National Weather Service at that time. He said it occurred because there were three factors, all of which came together at one moment around that little boat in the water. To the west of them, there was a cold front in England, west of the ship. Okay, That was the one that they knew about. To the north of them, there was a high-pressure system up in Canada, up north, that was causing weather disturbances as well. And then towards the southeast, there was the residue and unexpected recurrence of Hurricane Grace to the southeast of the ship. So that had expected to die, but it kind of rose up again. And so what you had in the midst of that was this storm they were aware of, but also the high pressure to the north and the hurricane uh, to the east. And all of these, as I said, weather systems converged at one time 
trapping the crew of this ship in a hopeless, hopelessly difficult situation. They were trapped in what later then began to be called The Perfect Storm, about which a book was written a few years later and about which a movie starring, I think, George Clooney was directed, was produced uh, a few years after that. The Perfect Storm. It's a disaster movie. Well, in a similar kind of way, believe it or not, the perfect storm is what's happening right here in the text that Cheryl just read for you. I know you didn't know it was happening. You just thought, oh, that's the story. Jesus walking into the, coming in, riding on a donkey. I've heard that story. This isn't Palm Sunday. Easter's not next week. Why are we reading that story? Well, we're reading it because we're studying the Gospel of John, and this is where we are. But there was a lot going on in that story. We shouldn't just trivialize it into a simple way. Oh, they praised Jesus. We should praise Jesus. There's a lot going on in this story, and this is a very important uh, junction in the stellar storytelling of John, because from here on in, Jesus has less than a week to live. And so the perfect storm has around, uh, gathering around him. There is a lot going on in here. Let's take a look at this story under two headings, and I hope you'll take time to jot them down. I know it's a little difficult to see indoors like the, or three headings, I guess. We want to see the conditions of Jesus' perfect storm, and secondly, the climax of Jesus' perfect storm, and the conclusion of Jesus' perfect storm. The conditions, the climax the conclusion. Well, what, first of all, were the conditions of this perfect storm? What was going around him in this seemingly innocuous ride into Jerusalem? Well, there were three factors that were going on. Number one, to, to take our perfect storm analogy, there was what we might call the western gale of Roman power. There was a western gale of Roman power. Rome was king of the world. They had been in power for about two or three hundred years. They, they were a world power which ruled benevolently as long as you served them and let them be in control. Don't cause any waves. They'll let you live and let live and have a few freedoms. They were in charge. They were kings of the earth. They actually had a sense of what we now would call in the United States manifest destiny. They were like what England was in the 17th, 18th century, spreading the good, you know, the Anglo-Saxon culture through colonialism, and, and sometimes some would say even we in the United States are thinking we're going to make, as we said a few years ago, the world safe for democracy, okay? But in any case, this was Rome. Their story was different than ours or that of England because 30 years before Jesus was born, it turned from more of a republic like it had been for the 200 years before that. And when Julius Caesar claimed power and had great victories, and he claimed back and he claimed to be divine. Now, no leader of Rome had ever done this before. This was a republic. They had rights and responsibilities. So when he claimed to be divine, uh, it caused a huge ruckus in the Roman Empire, and they ultimately assassinated him. And then his son, Octavius, came into power, and he began to refer to himself as the son of the divine or the son of the god. Julius Caesar. Do you see the parallel to what we understand about the Son of God? So Octavius took the title Augustus, and he ruled the Roman Empire until 14 A.D., till after Jesus was born and about probably 18 years old. Okay, when, Octav when Octavius Augustus decided, died, he too was divinized, and his successor, Tiberius, took upon himself the same 
title, the son of the divine. So we see that Rome is having a huge power complex going on here, not only with the country, but also with its leadership. In fact, if you were, there are coins from that period, during the period of Tiberius, who followed Augustus, who was the, 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 the leader during the time of Jesus' uh, uh, ministry. And it says, on the one side of it, it says, inscribed on, inscribed on it, Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side of the the coin, he is dressed as a priest with the title Pontifex Maximus. So we see this world power with its leader claiming to be the son of God and claiming to be the high priest. You see how powerful that was. So the worship of the emperor became more and more common. It means that if you ask the question in this day, who is the son of God, the politically correct answer was Tiberius. Or if you ask the question, who is the chief priest, the politically correct answer was Tiberius. To put it succinctly, the Roman state was attempting to play God in the lives of people all around the world. They would not take kindly to any person or group who contradicted their claims. This storm system is going on, and here comes Jesus, and they're saying to him, Hosanna, hail to the king. You see? It's a little more complicated than you might have imagined. That's one of the storms. The second storm we might call the high-pressure system of Jewish religion, a high-pressure system of Jewish religion. Not only was there the power of Rome, but also was the Jewish religion and religious expectations that were strong in that culture of that day. You see, the Jewish people believed that God had chosen them to reveal himself to the world. They were the chosen people. Yes, their history was filled with disaster and disobedience and difficulty and what they all called the dispersion, but they had a profound belief and hope that God would someday send to them a promised deliverer, a Messiah, an anointed one, a son of David who, like David, would lead them to victory over their oppressors and who would reestablish his kingdom on their earth if they faithfully followed God's laws, if they faithfully did what God told them Uh, to do. They were eagerly awaiting for their arrival of this deliverer, and both before and after Jesus, up until 125 AD, there were significant people who were acclaimed to be the deliverer of the people. Each of them was killed, and when they were killed, the movement died, except for Jesus and his death. We'll get to that in a bit. They were waiting for a deliverer who would lead them into battle against the enemy. You see, if you were real, uh, this was sort of a, a dangerous time for Jesus to accept their claims around him that would say to him, um, Hosanna, save us now. Hosanna, save us now. It had huge political ramifications, huge religious ramifications. And, and there was a lot of expectation that Jesus would gather followers and uh, start a revolution, a revolt. And, and the people who were sort of cozying up to Roman power, the Jewish people who were leading, they were worried about this. That's why they said, we've got to get rid of this guy because no, none of these revolutions ever succeed, and it only causes trouble. So that was the second storm. What was the third storm? The third storm was the high pressure, excuse me, the third storm was a hurricane force of Jesus' kingly mission. Into this, this storm of Roman power and Jewish religion and expectation, Jesus comes with a third force, a force of kingly mission. 
Now, if Jesus had merely intended to unite the Jewish people against the Roman captors, the history books would have written a lot differently. But Jesus' mission was much grander than that. His was a claim which put him in opposition both to Rome and Tiberius, the son of the God, and against the Jewish leaders because Jesus' mission, the essence of his mission, this could be stated this way. It was no less than this. Jesus claimed to embody the return of Israel's God to his people. Jesus claimed and was seen to be God in the flesh. The Almighty God, the creator of the universe, had come to them in the person of Jesus. Yes, he was fully human, but he was also divine. This was unthinkable to the Jewish people of that day. John has been building a case for the divine sonship of Jesus, for his humanity and his divinity right from the very start of this book and has come to its culmination here. For example, if you remember in John 11, John quotes Jesus as saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Not just that Jesus distributes life, but that he is life. Who gives life but God alone. You see, in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And for that claim, they, they began to try to stone him. He was claiming not just to be a deliverer, but to be God come to deliver his people. This was a threat not just to the Romans, but also to the Jews. We have a terrible, perfect storm that's going on. I go on and on about the examples in John. This gospel is filled with the assertion that Jesus was not just a good man, but that he was, in fact, God embodied, God in the flesh, unique in all history. No one like him before, no one like him since, one of a kind, God the Creator, clothed in human flesh. It was revolutionary. They expected a deliverer, but not a deliverer like that. In fact, anybody who claimed to be God, well, that would be blasphemy, wouldn't it? Yes, it would be blasphemy unless it were true. You see, Jesus' presence on the donkey that day only stirs the wind of that storm. The Jewish expectation, the religious leaders of that day, the Roman power is coming, and Jesus comes in there riding on a, on a donkey. The pressure is building. Jewish expectations are colliding with Roman imperialism, and now they are both being challenged by Jesus' mission. And we will discover that within six days, Jesus is dead. And that is why. It's all coming together in this simple story of a man riding as a king on a, local, on a lowly donkey. Very unsettling. What's all that mean? You see, a perfect storm is brewing, and Jesus rides right into it. Now, how does this story end? Let's look secondly at the climax of this perfect storm. The climax of this perfect storm. There are several things we want to see here. First of all, you want to see that Jesus confronts Roman power, Jewish religion, and human sin. Jesus comes in and will not acquiesce under power or religion or selfish sinfulness. He confronts that. Well, I can only be quickly uh, brief about this. I talk about this. There's much that could be said. But in this story, we see, first of all, his majesty, and secondly, his humility. Think about his majesty. When Jesus comes in, he's coming into the Passover time. 
Passover is not the kingly time for the people. That would have been another festival. But he comes in, and they take palm branches, and they begin to say, save now. They begin to treat him with the royal palm, the palm branch treatment. And it was done numerous times historically over that time period with the Jewish people. It was, a def, it was like a ticker tape parade. It was like saying, here comes our king. Do you see how that is a direct attack on Roman sovereignty. This is these Jewish people who have a, an unsettled relationship, a sort of freedom as long as they don't cause the waves. And here is Jesus coming with a massive amount of people. People are following him from Bethany where Lazarus was, where he had just been, if you were with us last week. And they're telling the stories about Jesus. And other people are coming in from Jerusalem. They're already there. They're coming out to see him. And this massive movement is happening. Bethany, as you recall, was only two miles away from uh, from Jerusalem. And so there's like a two-mile parade as Jesus makes his way in. That's his majesty. But it's not just his majesty that confronts Roman power. It's also, secondly, his humility. Because what does he ride on? He rides on a donkey. What should a king be riding on? The, the king should be riding on a, on, a, on a steed, on a valiant horse. This would be a, a symbol of military might. But instead, he rides on a donkey, which is a symbol of both humility and of peace. People knew that, and those people knew their Bibles, and they knew that text that we read at the beginning from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. See your king, your king comes before you riding on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey. You see, wait a minute, why is the king coming humbly? Why is he coming in peace? He's not Starting a revolution that way is, he see, he's coming in a different way than he expected. You see, what had happened, and I only can take a moment to say this, is that Jewish people did something that we do throughout. I'm not picking on them. We all do it. Is they had turned their religion in something like this, as a, a using God as a means to my ends. That's what most of us do with religion. I will do certain things for God, but then God owes me, Right? Religion is me kind of saying, okay, God, okay, God, and, and all these rules and regulations. Religion is a way of manipulating God, and they, this was not the way God intended it, but this is what they had begun to do, and we've done it ever since. People have always done it, trying to find a religious way of sort of appeasing the gods so that the gods will be obligated to serve us, and the Jewish people had fallen into that, and in today's world, we do that as well. Okay, so Jesus confronts Roman power. Or if we just say it simply, uh, simply, he confronts power, religion, and sin. We'll see that as we go. The second thing, Jesus, after he confronts it, number two, is condemned by power and religion and sin. He is condemned by all three. But the thing that's odd about this is that Jesus' condemnation did not come to him as a surprise. He fully expected that. He expected to be condemned by sinfulness, by religious activity, and by Roman power. It wasn't a surprise to him at all. It's as if he meant to capsize under that storm. And that's a huge mystery that we only understood later. But his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was 
glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about. What do they mean when they say it's glorified? They're speaking about his death and resurrection. And then when the Jewish people or the Greek people come to talk to them, Jesus says to them, no, this hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 23, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What Jesus is saying, what is Jesus saying? I'm planning to die. I'm going to be glorified, okay? There are two parts of this idea, and they're developed in the verses which follow. Jesus says that I'm going to die. And so this means that Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. He's going right into this storm, and he will let the storm kill him. The Jew, And if you think about it, fast forward as you know the story. A few days later, what do the Jewish leaders do? But they condemn him for blasphemy and deliver him to Pilate. The Jewish religion attacks him. And Pilate, who represents Roman power in John especially, will condemn Jesus to death. And what about the people, the people, human sinful people? When Jesus is presented before them, what did they say? But crucify him, crucify him. Everybody has to put away this Jesus. He's standing as a, a, a conflict to Roman power, to Jewish religion, and to human selfishness. It's as if both figuratively and literally Jesus wanted to take all the evil of all the world, all that storm, and swallow it up into himself. Jesus was conquered by that. Jesus was condemned by that. The third thing that we see under this second point is this. Jesus conquers Roman power. Jesus conquers Roman power. This is the second part of what it means when, Jesus, when it says Jesus was glorified in verse 16. For the glorious truth is this. As you know, Jesus did not stay dead. Three days after his burial, he was raised to new life. Think about this in verse 24 where it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it bears no fruit. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The implication is clear. I'm planning to die, but when I die, you'll see I will raise fruitfully. Jesus knew that like a seed planted in the ground, his death would result in life not only for him, but for all those who would follow him. Now, I hope you've read or seen The Lord of the Rings in the first book, The Fellowship of the Rings. You remember this story. Gandalf the Grey takes them into the halls of, I call it Moriah, but in the movie I think they call it Moria, okay? And they're walking their way through this, and it's terribly frightening. And after a while, there is this huge monster, the Balrog of Moria. Some of you remember that? At the, in the middle, while they're under that dungeon. And Gandalf, they're running. Gandalf stands at the bridge, and he, and he says, fly, fly, to the people behind him. And he, defeat, he fights Balrog, that huge monster there, Balrog of Moria. And he says to him, and this is a quote from the book, I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Anor. You cannot pass. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Lydwin. Go back to the shadow. You shall not pass. And there's this massive fight when Gandalf the Grey battles the Balrog. And you see what happens at the The Balrog is defeated on the bridge. But as he falls, what happens? But the thongs of his, of his uh, 
uh, of his whip grasp Gandalf's feet, and together they tumble down into the abyss, uh, and, and apparently dead. And again, Paul Balrog's, uh, Gandalf says, fly, you fools, as the bewildered company watch their leader fall to his death. It's a poignant and powerful Scene. After that, the fellowship is heartbroken at the loss of their leader and friend, knowing that he has given his life in order to save them. But as the story continues, what happens? Time passes, and ultimately, they discover to their amazement and profound joy that Gandalf the Grey has defeated death and has returned to them now, not as Gandalf the Grey, but as Gandalf the White risen from the dead, as it were, and now even more powerful than before, strengthened and renewed to be their leader. There is a poignant and powerful parable in what happened to this story, to what happened to Jesus. Yes, he confronted human pride and human arrogance and human power and human religion. Yes, he was condemned and executed by all those three, but his apparent defeat was actually a victory for having taken the thrust of all this evil in himself. He conquers it and rises above it. Jesus conquers power and religion and sin. And so let's close with the conclusion of Jesus' perfect storm. How are we to respond to this story? Because the story we read is a pretty sad one, isn't it? The same people who on Sunday or Monday had been saying, Hosanna, save now, Hosanna in the highest, and shouting their praises. By Thursday night, early Friday morning are saying, not Hosanna, but what? Crucify him. How are we to respond? Well, there are some hints of this in verses 24 and 25 and 26, and I'll say them really briefly. What do we do with the storm of Jesus? Number one, we lose our life for Jesus' sake. We lose our life for Jesus' sake. Listen to what verses 24 and 25 and 26 say. Truly, Jesus said, I'll start at 23. Jesus answered and said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about himself right now. And then he says to us, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my Father will offer him. See, we have to be willing to let go of our own pride, our own arrogance, our own sin. We have to be willing to follow Jesus in his death. We have to lose our life for Jesus' sake. We have to stop clinging to these things and to the things that they provide for us. The second thing, we have to receive the life that Jesus offers. We lose the life, lose our lives, and then receive the life that Jesus offers. There's not time to chat about this, but when it says lose your life, that's the word suke or sike. Okay? When it says receive the life, that's the life zoe. In other words, lose the human efforts of life. Receive the full life that Jesus offers. And then thirdly, live your life as Jesus offers. Lead, he says, follow me. 
So we lose our lives for Jesus' sake. That means that we stand before him and we offer our lives to him as we close this morning, whether initially for you or just as a commitment of your heart. Why don't you stand before Jesus and offer your life to him and receive the life that he offers back to you. Let's pray as we close. Father, we're grateful and thankful that you were willing to conquer the massive forces of evil in our world, and that you submitted to them yet conquered them. And we pray that we would then let go of the puny things to which we cling and which ultimately destroy us, and instead place our faith in Jesus who died and was raised again and whom we can follow so that we can experience the true life that he offers to us. In Jesus' name, amen.